brought back a memory of uh, being in India practicing, uh, this is in the early 70s, with a teacher named Galenka. And there were very large courses, 150 or so people. And they had this big kind of Indian circus tent on the roof of this, uh, like a monastery or vihara. And it was in January in northern India. It was quite cold. And it was a week of rain. About a hundred people, the tent collapsed. And it was a total mess. And there was not, no nice warm lodge with a fire to come to. So I was thinking, well, it's raining, but not quite so bad. Okay, now you can... <laughs> That's just a little aside. <laughs> Um, people come to meditation practice really for a wide variety of reasons some of you may have come because you heard about it from friends or other people and you thought you know it sounded interesting wanted to try it sometimes people come thinking it will be a chance to cool out or unwind or de-stress you know, from the busyness of their lives Sometimes people feel that the meditation can help resolve or understand some levels of psychological or emotional suffering you know, that may be present in our lives. Sometimes people have an aspiration or a vision of enlightenment, of really accomplishing genuine freedom in one's life. For whatever reason, you know, brings us all here, it's really quite a rare event to take this amount of time out from undoubtedly busy lives to be in silence. Not many people do that in their lives, to take even ten days to be in silence, to be with oneself, to really come face to face with oneself. And yet, in some way, I feel that it's the most important thing we can do in our lives. We're all conditioned to view our experience, our relationships, our work, the world around us, from a certain perspective. We see things from a certain viewpoint. Inevitably, because we're all conditioned in a particular way. It's what Thich Nhat Hanh calls the miracle of mindfulness, that miracle of awareness that actually allows us to cut through our conditioning. To see things in a way that's fresh, in a way that's clear, to touch that place of clear seeing within us that is so radically transforming of the way we understand ourselves, the way we understand our lives. I first became interested in meditation when I was in the Peace Corps in Thailand. This was in the late, so middle 60s. I was stationed in Bangkok. I was teaching English. 
as a second language. I started going to a Buddhist monastery. Actually, it was quite a famous, it's called the Marble Temple uh, in Bangkok. And there were some Westerners who were monks who were teaching, you know, in English. I started going to these weekly groups and getting extremely interested, you know, in Buddhism, in the Dharma, in the practice. I had studied philosophy in college, and my mind was just non-stop. And I would go to these groups and ask endless questions. People stopped coming to the groups because I was going. I was so obnoxious in my relentless questioning. Finally, one of the one of the monks who was teaching said, "Listen, why don't you try meditating?" <laughs> and I think it was his last-ditch effort to shut me up. And at that time, nobody I knew, you know, was meditating. It really very exotic. Here I was in Bangkok, and okay, I'm going to meditate. So I get all my paraphernalia together, you know, cushions and this and that, and I sit down cross-legged, and I set the alarm clock for five minutes, because I didn't want to sit too long. But that five minutes was amazing. That five minutes actually changed the course of my life. Not because I had any fantastic experience, but rather in that five minutes, I saw that there was a way to look inward, inwardly, as well as outwardly. And all of my life, all of my training had been to examine things from the outside, to looking outside myself. And all of a sudden, sit down five minutes. We're still in the same place but it was turned inward instead of outward. And to see that that inner journey was possible, that was a tremendous opening. And so for us to find that for ourselves, to see that it actually is possible for us to understand ourselves. After I finished the Peace Corps, I came home for a while and I realized, trying to practice by myself, that I needed a teacher. It was just too confusing. Too many things were going on. I didn't quite know what to do. So I went back to India and found a teacher in Bodh Gaya, the place the Buddha was enlightened. And what drew me most to this kind of practice was the complete common sense attitude about it. When I went there and I met my teacher, he said the most simple things. He said, if you want to understand your body, your mind, sit down and look. That was all. It wasn't any belief system. It wasn't any dogma. There wasn't any ritual involved. There were no trappings. If you want to understand yourself, sit down and look. Pay attention. It seems so obvious. That's what our practice is about. It's really undertaking this discipline of looking, of awareness. The word Vipassana, which is this kind of meditation, literally, this is a Pali word, and Pali is the language uh, the Buddha spoke, colloquial uh, Indian language. The literal meaning of vipassana means seeing clearly, to see things clearly.
this is another little aside. In Burma, uh, where where Buddhism is very strong, there are very there's this very small group of monks who have done the remarkable feat of memorizing the entire Buddhist canon, which is hundreds and hundreds of volumes. And they've, they've memorized it and recited it. I think there are four or five of these monks in Burma. Well, when we visited there one year, one of the people in our group asked, we visited one of these monks and asked the monk to sum up well, you, you know, you know these hundreds of volumes of teachings and texts, and you know some of it is very uh, profound and subtle. And I said, "How can you sum up all of the teachings in, you know, one line?" So this monk thought for a moment, and he said, "To know what's what." And I thought that is a great definition of the Dharma. You know, Carol spoke a little this morning about the meaning of Dharma, of truth, of way, of reality. To know what's what. This is what our practice is about. Because when we see clearly, when we really know what's what, out of that understanding comes greater wisdom, comes greater compassion, comes greater equanimity. And our effectiveness in the world becomes tremendously magnified. Each one of us in our spiritual journey really is quite unique and the journey is very personal. As we begin to unwind the patterns of our conditioning, we all go through quite different twists and turns on the one hand. And on the other hand, there are certain frameworks of understanding the spiritual path which actually hold all our experience. And these frameworks of understanding also illuminate our experience, illuminate a much larger context. What I'd like to do over these next nine or ten days in some of the evening talks is to describe one of these frameworks of understanding what this journey is about. It comes or comes from the very original teachings of the Buddha, and it's found in one particular text or discourse in which he describes the stages of purification. And these stages of purification start where we are now and culminate in enlightenment, culminate in awakening. This is the path. So what is the first stage of purification? The Buddha called it purity of conduct, or purity of action. And what this means is that we practice, we train, we develop, we refine our basic morality, basic understanding of non-harming. We do this, of course, not only on retreat, 
But we make this practice, we make our life our practice of morality. If we pay careful attention to our actions, if we really undertake this as a practice, that we're paying attention to our actions, we begin to see something that is a fundamental consequence in our lives. It's one of the most basic and important aspects of the teachings and of the path, and that is the understanding, which we can see for ourselves through our own attentiveness, that actions have consequences. And on the one hand, it's very obvious, and yet on the other hand, we often don't live our lives out of this understanding. Actions have consequences. The Buddha called this the law of karma. It simply means that every act we do has a certain kind of result. We may not always see the result clearly or understand what all the consequences are, but it's actually this experience of the law of karma for each one of us which motivates us to act. Why do we act in the world? We act because we think some result will follow. And whether you consider the actions of all the people polluting the planet, why are they doing that? They're doing it because in some way they think there's going to be some gain for themselves. They think there'll be a certain result. It's a very limited vision of the consequence, but they understand to that extent Yes, doing this to gain to gain a certain result. Why do you do the work you do? Known committed to helping the planet. Because you think there will be a consequence, a result from the work you do. The Buddha went one step further in clarifying this law of cause and effect, and it's an essential clarification which, when we understand deeply, transforms our lives, transforms the quality of our actions, transforms the possibility for happiness. And this clarification of this law of cause and effect, which the Buddha pointed to, he said that what most determines the consequence of our actions what most determines the kind of results that come is the motive, the motivation behind the action, not the action itself. This is a very profound and subtle point. That it's not so much the action which determines the result, but the motivation behind it. There's a Tibetan saying which which points to this says everything rests on the tip of motivation. It's like everything comes down to that, to the tip of motivation. Okay, so keeping this in mind, we can then go back and explore what is this first stage of purification? Purity of action, purity of conduct. How do we practice this? How do we develop it? We can develop it on different levels. One level 
Carol spoke about this morning a bit in terms of the five precepts of undertaking basic precepts of morality so that we don't do harmful things to ourselves or other people. Not killing, not stealing, not committing sexual misconduct, not lying, not taking a lot of intoxicants which cloud the mind. Now we hear these, and we've probably been hearing this since our childhood, whether it's in the form of the five precepts or the ten commandments or this or that. There are lots of basic systems of ethical moral behavior And probably each one of us has the idea, well, I basically live like that. I mean, I'm basically a moral person. I don't go around killing other people or stealing or whatever. What I would like to suggest is that we not take these for granted. That we actually look carefully in our lives with these precepts in whatever form as a reference point and really look very honestly. Now, how totally committed are we to them? Or do we kind of do it more or less? Ethical behavior is capable of tremendous refinement in our lives. And as we pay more and more attention to our actions, we begin to see places where it can be refined. just the precept of not killing. You know, what's our attitude when mosquitoes are biting us? For most people, I don't know your particular relationship to mosquitoes, but most people wouldn't think twice about swatting a mosquito. And in fact, I think to most people it would be odd not to. But still, that mosquito is alive. It has life force. If we're committed to not killing, is there a way maybe of brushing it, brushing it off rather than killing it? It's a small thing, although it's not a small thing for the mosquito. You know, but we can look at our actions to see, okay, are there ways to further deepen our understanding of what purity of action means? I'd like to tell you one story which kind of combines two of these precepts. It was during a course at IMS, which is Meditation Center in Barrie. And this was during one of the longer retreats. I think it was during a three-month retreat. And the yogis come in for the three-month retreat. They really begin to feel quite at home. And it is their home for those three months. Well, off the kitchen there was this big, there's a big walk-in refrigerator and a big walk-in freezer. And it was quite late at night one night, maybe 10 or 11 o'clock at night, and a staff person walks, walked in to get something out of the, the big walk-in refrigerator. And the staff person saw a yogi there, kind of with his hand in, I don't know, a box of dates or figs or whatever. So the staff person opens the door and sees He's this yogi, the meditator, and just said, well, can I help you? <laughs> and the yogi, the yogi replies, oh, I was just looking for the maintenance department. <laughs> 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 oh, 
that was quite an interesting response. <laughs> there are two precepts involved. <laughs> it's more difficult than one imagines. Just taking the precept of right speech. Imagine what it would be like, and you'll have to kind of assess for yourself whether you feel like you already do it or not. <coughs> to never say that which is untrue. I've been amazed, and I've looked a lot at and, and tried to practice and develop this aspect of right speech in how many different circumstances it's just slightly either a slight exaggeration or trying to protect somebody or making a joke something that said that is not exactly true and I reflect on the tremendous power that would come if we were totally committed to always speaking the truth So all of these are just kind of suggestions you know, of, of places where we might begin to look to see how this first stage of purification could be developed, could be refined from where we are to deeper and more subtle levels. Okay, so we look at our actions. The second level of working with purity of action would be to look at our motivations. Because the very same act could be done from a very different place in the heart. And the results or the consequences will depend on the motivation behind the action. I'll give you one simple example of this. At one time I was in India, I was practicing, and those of you who have been there know that everyone there deals with the reality of beggars, and that's, there are beggars all over, and in one way or another, one needs to come to terms with how one is going to relate, and generally people go through a whole spectrum of responses. One time I was in the local bazaar just buying some fruit and this little beggar boy came up and sort of held out his hand and I gave him an orange that I just bought and he walked away. And in the moment of his walking away, he didn't say anything. There was, there was no acknowledgement. No. He just took the orange and walked away. I realized that mixed in with what I thought was a genuine impulse of you know, just basic kindness and generosity. There was also something else going on of wanting some acknowledgement, a smile or a thank you or something. And it was only when he walked away with no acknowledgement at all that I realized that. That had been hidden from me. And it was a very good lesson for me to see that our motivations 
motivations behind our actions are very complex. You know, and often we're picking up just perhaps the most obvious one or even the strongest one, but maybe not seeing you know, the other things that are really going on in our minds. It's precisely because everything rests on the tip of motivation. This is what the law of karma revolves around. The consequences of our actions depend on the motivation we have. It's precisely because of this that we need to learn how to recognize. We need to learn to see clearly what our own motivations are. And this leads us to the second stage of purification the Buddha talked about. talked about purification of mind. The first is purification of action, purification of mind. And this is the development of some level of steadiness, of calmness, of concentration, so that we can see clearly. Without a minimal level of stillness in the mind, we don't know what's what. We don't know what's really going on. Even after one day of practice, and often the first day of a retreat is the hardest, but even after one day, you have all had a tremendously important insight. Now, this is called insight meditation, and people sometimes wonder, well, what are the insights? Well, you've already had an amazingly important one. And in case you missed it, I'll tell you what it is. <laughs> because guaranteed, there's nobody here who has not had this yet. And that is the insight or the understanding of how frequently the mind wanders of how frequently we get lost in our thoughts. Is there anybody who has not seen that? <laughs> Don't underestimate the value of seeing this. Because if you would go up to somebody on the street, just at random, does your mind wander? Oh no, I know what I'm doing. Most people have no idea of the activity, the mental activity that's going on, and how frequently the mind is often running. You know, we feel a breath or two. Maybe if we're lucky, we feel three or four. And then it's as if the mind gets lost on this train of association. It's as if we hop on this train. We have no idea that we've hopped on, and we have no idea where the train is going. You know, and then somewhere down the road, down the tracks, you know, it's like we get off and we can be in a completely different mental environment, completely different terrain. It might be, you know, one of some strong emotion or reaction or whatever. And the mind does this over and over again. How many times in one sitting do we just get carried away? And these thoughts don't even have to be pleasant. You know, <laughs> the mind has this penchant 
for reliving old arguments, old hurts, old this and that. We can be in misery in these thought forms and still the seductive power of them is so great. Purity of mind, this level of purification means recognizing the seeing if this is what's going on all the time. It's not that it just started happening since you came here. It's just in the silence, in the stillness, in being relatively undistracted, we see it. And it is quite amazing. This insight that the mind does that, and again, this is something you see for yourself. It's not a question of believing anyone. (laughs) We see it over and over again. It is of tremendous import because it shows us the absolute necessity of training our minds. Because we are creating all of these worlds, all of these mind worlds, and acting them out. And to a large extent, it's done unknowingly, unconsciously. Now, when we look about in the world today, there are countless, uh, countless, innumerable examples, but I'll just pick a couple that stand out. You know, the, the tremendous suffering that's been going on in Bosnia all these years. And it seems like, <laughs> it just seems like it's been going on for so long. Basically, neighbors, you know, who shared the same cities and the same towns and the same countryside, living together, killing each other. Why? It's because of fears of anger, of hatred, all kinds of conditioning of the mind is acting out certain thought forms. These thoughts arise in the mind, we get lost in them, act in them with this tremendous destruction following. It all starts in the mind. And on the other hand, recently I read uh, Nelson Mandela's autobiography, which is wonderfully inspiring and taught in South Africa. To me, it is totally astounding what has happened there. You know, this transference of power without a monumental bloodbath. And it really was largely due, of course, to many people, but to a certain vision he had of reconciliation rather than uh, antagonism. He held a certain thought form and tremendous consequence from that. From that. It's essential that we begin to be aware of the thoughts that are arising in the mind. Not simply getting lost over and over and over again, acting them out, sometimes good ones, sometimes not so good ones, And it's not only, you know, in these very dramatic circumstances. It's the same process happening in our own lives, in the work that you do, in the solitude of a meditation retreat, between one breath and the next. How many, how many mind worlds does the mind create? 
just tell you one little story. This spring I, I did a three-month self-retreat. In two of those months, uh, I did it with a couple of other people. We rented a house on Cape Cod. And it was the months of April and May. And April in Cape Cod is still its quite cold, uh, although beautiful. So the place was pretty empty. You know, and the house was right on a cliff overlooking the beach and the water. It was a beautiful setting. Long beach, 10, 15 mile long beach. We would do walking meditation on it. It was, it was empty. It was completely deserted. So I'm in silence and meditating. And then one night, I hear this car driving along the beach. And I couldn't believe it. I mean, it was so incongruous to me that in this beautiful, peaceful, still environment, <laughs> there would be a car driving along it. And my mind just got irritated. <laughs> and at a certain point, uh, the car stopped, and I could hear the wheel spinning a little bit. And the thought that came into my mind, I hope he gets stuck. <laughs> and then I kind of, you know, I woke up to the thought, here I am, practicing love and kindness, be happy, I hope he gets stuck. And the contrast, it was just, it was a startling wake up to me, just to see the power of our conditioned reactions, our attachments, our aversions, and how they can really create an inner emotional environment and, when we're not aware, result in actions in the world. We need to see what's going on. We need to know what's happening in ourselves so that we can exercise some wise discrimination. You know, let go of those things which are not helpful, which are harmful. This is, this is a quotation from Oliver Wendell Holmes, which he says, What lies behind us and what lies before us are tiny matters compared to what lies within us. And the more we get into the practice, becomes so clear. The Buddha said that the whole universe, the whole world, is contained within this fathom-long body. You know, and it, just as we begin to see the realities which we create out of our own thought forms, we see the truth of that. So this stage, this second stage of purification, purification of mind means getting still enough, getting concentrated enough so that we can see, so that we're not simply lost, we're not simply acting out our conditioning. The beauty of the retreat is that the very simplicity of the form helps us develop this inner stillness. You know, as I hope you've gotten a sense of, this form is really simple. It's sitting and walking, sitting and walking. There's nothing very elaborate about it. But through the discipline of that simplicity of paying attention in the sitting to the breath, to different sensations, paying attention in the walking, to the movement, 
slowly the mind actually begins to get focused. It gets concentrated, it gets calm, and there's a sense, an experience of a tremendous inner relaxation. It's like kind of inner stillness as the flood of thoughts begins to quiet down a bit. It's not that they stop. Thoughts will continue to come, but instead of a torrent, instead of being swept along by them, just as you continue with the practice, as you settle into the simplicity, and as you do it, as you do the practice, you begin to experience the thoughts begin to lose some of their power. You begin to rest more in a place of calm, more in a place of silence. Just to reiterate a few of the tools of the practice which help strengthen this inner calm, the sense of inner peace. And we've mentioned this before, but I would like just to make sure that you're clear about it. One is the use of a primary object of meditation. So in the sitting we use the breath, in the walking we use the movement. It's a reference point. So every time the mind does wander, every time we do get lost, which will happen many, many times, it's something to come back to. That's the training. The training is the coming back. No matter how many times the mind goes off or gets lost, simply begin again. And it's by that beginning again that slowly the mind calms down. There's, a, there's an image which is used in the kind of Asian countries. It's, it's an image of training a monkey a wild monkey which has been captured in the forest and what they do is just attach it, you know, the rope or the chain to a stake. And at first the monkey keeps trying to jump away but it's restrained by the rope. Depending how clever the monkey is, after some time it realizes it can't go anyplace. And so it settles down and stays calm. Our minds have been likened to that monkey, the monkey mind. Now, goes off endless times each time simply bring it back to the primary object come back to the breath or a sound or the movement you do that again and again and at a certain point the mind catches on oh it can't go anyplace mindfulness is watching so we bring it back and the mind actually develops some stillness Another great help in the practice is slowing down. You know, most of you, I'm sure, lead very busy, hectic, fast-paced lives. The retreat is a tremendous gift you've given yourself to be in silence and to slow down a bit. Watch to see when you're rushing. And when you have that feeling of rushing, of toppling forward, and then just settle back. Slowing down doesn't mean holding yourself back. It doesn't mean getting tight in that way. It means settling back. You just settle back, taking care with your movements, not only in the walking meditation, but as you're moving around. And when you open a door, can you be there for that? As you're eating, as you're going to the latrine, as you're taking a shower, to really be present. Take time. There's no hurry here. 
Georgia O'Keeffe wrote something, since we're in this neck of the woods, it's particularly appropriate. She wrote, still in a way, nobody sees a flower, really. It is so small, we haven't time. And to see takes time, like to have a friend takes time. If we want to see carefully, if we want to see the subtleties of things, it means slowing down, it means taking time. And quite an amazing thing happens on retreat, and it happens for almost everybody. As our mind gets quiet, as we slow down, as we take more care with what we're doing, our very ordinary experiences at times become magically alive. You know, we just see the leaves on the trees in a different way. Sometimes in looking around, I mean, it's just glorious, all the shades of green. There's, there's a wonderful poem by uh, Federico Loca, a uh, Spanish poet. The first line of the poem in English is green, green, I love you, green. And then it goes on from there. It's somebody who sees. So we want to take the time, we want to slow down to open up to our bodies, to our minds, to the environment in this way. So using the primary object, slowing down. Use the mental noting. Now use it as a help in the beginning just to connect with what's going on Once you feel connected, you can drop it for a while. The mind wanders a lot. Bring it back again. Pay attention also to the tone of the note because that often reveals the attitude or quality in our mind which we may very well be missing. So, for example... If you're, if you're with the breath and you're noting in, out, in, out, that's a command. <laughs> that's not an acknowledgement of what's happening. And, and it really reveals that kind of tightness of the mind. Sometimes the tone of the note is angry or impatient or whatever. The note should be very soft, should be very gentle. Pay attention to when it's not because that's showing you something. As the mind begins to get calm and quiet, we start to open up to a whole range of feelings and sensations in the body. And you've probably had this experience already. Generally, the sensations that come first are the unpleasant ones, or the painful ones. We begin to experience different levels of discomfort. As people open to this and experience this in their practice, very often uh, a sense of discouragement comes because we associate pleasant experience with good meditation. And if it's hurting or painful or uncomfortable, we think this is not a good sitting. That is a mistaken notion. And I know this will be hard to believe, but actually... 
the feeling of these kinds of painful or difficult sensations are a sign of progress. We're feeling them precisely because we're no longer distracting ourselves. And normally we stay so busy and stay so externally directed, we don't really feel what's going on in ourselves, in our bodies. Sitting quietly, undistracted, it's all there. A certain kind of courage is needed in spiritual practice because it means facing what is true, facing what is true in our experience. And sometimes it's painful. Are we willing to be with that? Are we willing to open to it? It's quite revealing to pay attention to our habituated responses or reactions to pain. We have many, many kinds of strategies for dealing with pain. Often they're not very helpful. One of the strategies which I've noticed in my mind, and I think it's not uncommon, is self-pity. You know, it's kind of the poor me syndrome. Everybody else is in blissful samadhi, blissful concentration, and I'm sitting here suffering. And I can just get on this tape loop. You know, self-pity or complaining. What is a complaining mind? Perhaps an even more deeply conditioned one, and one that's a powerful influence in our lives, is that of fear. There's very often fear in response to pain or anxiety. It can be the fear of simply feeling it. It could be the fear of thinking, this will never go away. But what happens with fear? There's a contraction, there's a pulling back, and we get even tighter. There can be self-pity, there can be fear, there can be bargaining. I've seen my mind do this. I'll watch you, talking to the pain, if you go away. As I'm, I'm engaging in some bargain with it. That also is not mindfulness. It's not acceptance. Our practice and the courage that's needed is a kind of inner strength which can grow slowly. It's not that we have to take on a huge amount all at once, but this is the direction we're going in. Can we learn a whole different way of relating to pain and difficulty? And that is instead of struggle, instead of fighting, instead of fear, is it possible to soften, to relax into it? There's a, there's a meditative mantra which I use, which has helped me tremendously in the practice. Sort of a magic mantra. Which I will tell you. And the magic mantra is, it's okay. So when I feel my mind getting you know, caught or tight or struggle around anything, I remember the magic mantra, it's okay. It's okay. Let me feel it. Just let me feel, let me be with it. And it's amazing. Because at least for a moment, it may not be of long duration, but at least for a moment, the mind just settles back, opens to it. And this is what we want to develop. We want to see that, yes, this is a possibility. 
there's something very profound in this. It's not only about getting okay with the whole range of our experience. There's something about this that goes even deeper. And it was revealed to me very clearly at one time when I was practicing in Burma, which was incredibly noisy. The monastery is right in Rangoon, surrounded by kind of I'm not quite sure of the terminology. Like there are clusters of villages, you know, on the outskirts of the city, and the monastery was surrounded by these villages. And for some reason, I mean, I've spent years and years in Asia. There is this penchant for loudspeakers. I mean, in India, in Burma, in Thailand, and usually in the villages, they'll erect these big loudspeakers and just blare this loud music all day and all night. Yeah, and I'm sitting there. I can't believe that they're enjoying this. You know, and I have to remind myself, I'm visiting this country. You know, this is <laughs> but I'm in this monastery, loudspeakers on all on all sides, and I feel like I'm in a madhouse. You know, I mean literally I had that feeling because it was non stop. And so my mind gets really into this complaining mode, you know, to myself. Well, if I go to, to my teacher, Pandita, and I'm reporting my experience, and all he said was, did you note it? And I heard that, and I've heard it, I'd heard it, you know, a million times before. And I thought he was basically trying to make the best of a bad situation. Okay, there's this endless, loud, annoying music, you know, as long as it's there, you know, noted. But when I went back and actually did that, noted, hearing, 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 I said, it wasn't about making the best of a bad situation. It's about the understanding that most deeply, most completely, it does not matter what's arising. That the nature of awareness is unaffected by the particular experience which arises and that our freedom consists in the recognition of this. Mostly we get so caught in our own reactions. I like this, I don't like that. And we get tight, we get tied up in those reactions. When he said, did you note it? It was a reminder again to drop back. It's just hearing. It's okay. And what was so amazing is that it became okay. It became just sound. So something very profound about how we're relating to ourselves, to the world, about the nature of suffering in our lives and the nature of freedom is happening as we practice this purification of mind. Developing the steadiness, developing the stillness, so that we both can see the trains of thoughts that are carrying us away, and so we begin to drop back into that place of awareness that is not affected, that can respond appropriately, but is not caught in reactivity. And right there is really the essence of freedom in our lives. 
like to close just with a poem by Pablo Neruda. I thought it was appropriate for this coming together of environmental activists and silent meditation. The name of the poem is Keeping Quiet. Now we will count to twelve and we will all keep still. For once on the face of the earth, let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for a second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment without rush, without engines. We would all be together in a sudden strangeness. Those who prepare green wars, wars with gas, wars with fire, victories with no survivors, would put on clean clothes and walk about with their brothers in the shade, doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total inactivity. Life is what it is about. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving, and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt this sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us, as when everything seems dead in winter and later proves to be alive. Now I'll count up to twelve, and you keep quiet, and I will go. That's it for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.